Well, good evening and welcome. I'm here alone tonight. <laughs> welcome. Thank you all for coming tonight. I hope that you all have had a good first half of the week so far. And uh, I'm glad that you came to uh, study the word together tonight. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time of study this evening. Father of grace, we want to thank you for the privilege that it is every time that we can gather together and fellowship as believers, every time that we can come together and pray and uh, share our needs and concerns with one another and with you. And uh, Lord, what a privilege it is to come and to study the word of God together. And so Lord, we're thankful for this opportunity. And Lord, as we uh, move into the book of Revelation and again, try to understand it and its message, Lord, we pray for uh, the Spirit's uh, wisdom, insight, uh, give us understanding, Father, not, not only so that we might understand uh, in a mental or intellectual way, but so also that we might apply uh, the, the heart, the message of this book to our lives. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would bless this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we started to uh, just kind of lay the foundation for studying the book of Revelation. And I mentioned last week that you know, I'm sure every one of us, and, and I want to as well, just jump in Revelation 1-1 and just start reading it and interpreting it. And what does this book have to say? But with a book like Revelation, I think it's really important to kind of get our bearings and what kind of lay a foundation for the kind of book that it is and kind of give us some perspective on how rightly to approach it. And so last week we we're looking at the importance of context, 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 just like in real estate, location, location, location. And so the most important thing for understanding the Bible is context. Now, not just paragraph context, not just the sentence or the, the paragraph that it's in, but other kinds of context as well. And so we were looking at the importance of historical context. So who wrote this book? What, what was the historical situation? Who were uh, the original recipients of this letter? Um, why was this book written? So historical context is important, especially when you're dealing with uh, a prophecy, which Revelation is, and it's also written in the form of a letter of John to the churches. And so that strongly suggests that there is a particular situation going on that we need to understand if we're going to make sense of what John is writing. So uh, who wrote it? John, the apostle John uh, wrote it. When was it written? And we talked about the fact that there are really two main options. Uh, you have either AD 70, probably during the reign of Nero, in the mid-60s and his persecution. If you take that view, then um, most of what Revelation is talking about probably has to do with the fall of Jerusalem in AD 70. That's kind of a minority view among interpreters. The vast majority of commentators understand it to be during the reign of Domitian, which would put it in the 90s AD. And so it is in the context of that persecution that uh, it was most likely written. Uh, why was it written? Well, uh, it was written with a particular 
historical situation and a particular occasion and purpose. And, and that historical situation has to do with persecution. It has to do with uh, the uh, kind of influence and pressure of idolatry and false teaching on the churches. And so we have to think about this kind of historical context. But then we also said there's a geographical context too. We live a long way away in, time, in terms of history, time, as well as location from the Mediterranean Sea and the island of Patmos and uh, Asia Minor, which is today Turkey, places like Ephesus and Smyrna and, and Thyatira and these places that John is writing to, they're far away, both in terms of distance as well as time. So we have to, we have to think about that uh, context and remember that John wasn't writing in 21st century English to 21st century Americans. So we have to do a little bit of extra work to understand that context. Uh, we also uh, need to understand the importance of cultural context. And with cultural context, uh, we have a particular political situation. You know, we have uh, a Caesar, an emperor, uh, who's on the throne in Rome. It's the Roman Empire controlling most of the ancient world at this time. Uh, you have a social situation. Uh, we mentioned last week just the, the social pressure that Christians could face uh, because of different trade guilds or societies that they had that that were oftentimes uh, very pagan and idolatrous. And if they didn't go along with those things, they could be financially destitute. They could lose work, lose employment. Uh, a religious situation in which instead of a Baptist or Methodist church in every corner, you've got a temple to a, a Greek or Roman God on every corner, just about. It is fully immersed in uh, paganism and polytheism. That's the religious context that these early churches are trying to thrive in, survive and thrive in. And so then we looked at the importance of literary uh, context. And that is uh, what genre or type of literature is Revelation. And that's kind of a complex question because it's not just one. There are indications in the letter or in the book that it takes at least uh, three different genres or types of literature and kind of blends them together in one book. So it is a prophecy that also has apocalyptic elements written in the form of a letter. So it, is, it kind of has some of the elements of these three different genres or types of literature. And so we have to think about, okay, what rules of interpretation or what lenses do we put on when we read a letter? What, what rules of interpretation or, uh, you know, lenses, interpretive lenses do we put on when we le- read a book of prophecy or apocalyptic? We have to take all those things into consideration when we're reading and trying to understand Revelation. And I think that's where we got to last week. And then the next context that is really important is the canonical context. The canonical context means comes from the word canon, which if throughout much of church history, the idea of the canon refers to that which is sacred scripture. So what documents or books are included in the Bible 
what books are not. So when we say the canon, we're talking about the books that are included as scripture in our Bible. So when I say canonical context, then what we're, what we're talking about is really the whole Bible. So we have to take into consideration what Revelation is saying, but we also have to take into consideration what the rest of the Bible says as well. And one of the reasons for this is because we believe in what theologians call the analogy of faith. The analogy of faith is, in layman's terms, basically that Scripture helps interpret itself, Scripture interprets Scripture, and it doesn't contradict itself. So the best help that we can get in understanding a difficult portion of Scripture is another portion of Scripture that maybe isn't quite as difficult. And so we, we believe that the Scriptures, even though written by many different human authors over across centuries, they have ultimately behind them one unified divine author who is inspiring them. So when John's writing something or Paul is writing something or even centuries earlier when Moses is writing something, they're, they're, in a, they're going to be in agreement. They, they may come from it from different perspectives and obviously different points in history, and they have different lives and backgrounds that they're bringing to the table, but they're not going to contradict each other. They're going to add to or complement or uh, build together the, the story of the Bible. And so we have to, when we're reading Revelation, think about what does the rest of Scripture say? And then we have to take into consideration as well the Bible's meta-narrative. That's kind of a, a, just a fancy word for thinking about the Bible's big story. What, what is the Bible's big story? If we were to tell the story of the Bible in one paragraph, what would that story be? Well, uh, essentially... It would, be, it would revolve around four key movements or stages in that story. The first one is creation. Genesis 1 through 1 and 2. God made the world. Everything that exists, God made, and it's here for God, for God's glory, for God's purposes. So we start, the story begins with creation, right? But then we also have a fall, Genesis 3. And with that fall in Genesis 3 comes the rest of the story of humanity, of violence and hatred and jealousy and envy and wars and calamities and tragedies and, and thorns and thistles and pain and childbearing and, and all of the difficulties that, this, that we experience in this world is a part of the fall, including death. So... God made it, but then we fell because of sin and disobedience. So what is God doing about that? The, the main theme of the Bible then is God redeeming, right? Redemption. God is redeeming people who have fallen. So he made people, they fell, and a large part of the story of the Bible is God redeeming sinful people. Old Testament, New Testament. He redeemed Israel out of Egypt rescued them, which is a, an early picture of ultimately what Christ does for us on the cross, isn't it? That, that Christ is redeeming sinful people. And then what's kind of the final stage of the story, which we, we get in Revelation? 
especially toward the last few chapters. What's the final stage of the story is new creation. So we have creation, fall, redemption, but God is making all things new, isn't he? And Isaiah talks about it, a new heavens and a new earth. John talks about it in, in Revelation 20 and 21 and 22, a new heavens and a new earth. So God is going to make all things new. That's kind of the, the overarching story of the Bible. That kind of has to be in the background in whatever book of the Bible we're reading. Where does this fall in that, in that storyline? How does this individual story fit into that larger story? So we have to keep that in, in, our, in our minds as we read individual portions of Scripture. Uh, so we have the Bible's meta-narrative or, or big story. And then a really important thing in Revelation is Revelation's use of Scripture, especially the Old Testament. I don't think, I don't think this is an exaggeration, and I think this is an accurate statement. Revelation... The book of Revelation quotes or alludes to, draws language from, images, pictures from the Old Testament more than any other New Testament book. Now, there are, there are some New Testament books, especially in the Gospels and Paul, that specifically quote Old Testament scriptures. They'll say, as Isaiah says, or to be fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah said. Revelation doesn't do that quite as much as it just, on every, literally every page of Revelation, statistically about every other verse, there is some phrase, picture, image, language, that has the Old Testament in the background. And and I think that is something that a lot of readers miss when they're reading Revelation, is not thinking about the way that the Apostle John, as a first century Jew, having grown up in the synagogues and hearing the Old Testament scriptures and then learning from Christ, his teaching his perspective on the Old Testament scriptures. As we read in the last chapter of Luke, that beginning with Moses and all the way through the writings, Jesus showed them the things in the scriptures concerning himself. So it was like the disciples got a, a master class in Old Testament theology from Jesus. And John is now writing this vision of that God is showing to him but it is, it is steeped, it is soaked, saturated in Old Testament language and pictures. And so we have to see that as we're reading through um, the book of Revelation. One scholar, this is from probably about 100 years ago, who is, who is a scholar of Revelation in his time. Of the 404 verses of Revelation, he, he counted 278 verses that refer to the Old Testament scriptures. So almost, by his counting, three out of four. Uh, one uh, in the uh, one uh, Greek text that has the, the Greek New Testament in it, they have a, a kind of a, an index in the back 
that they they re, they take note of all the places where New Testament uses Old Testament. They have over 500 Old Testament passages as possible allusions or verbal parallels in the book of Revelation. So, and, and all over the place in the Old Testament, we have images like the tree of life from Genesis, uh, that's that old serpent, the devil from Genesis. We have images from Exodus and Mount Sinai. We have images from Deuteronomy. We have uh, language from the Psalms, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. They're all over the place in Revelation. And so we have to keep that in mind. And, and sometimes you have to keep, to really understand Revelation, you've got to keep a finger in Revelation and be flipping backwards to go back to the Old Testament to see what that's saying in that passage. Because when John uses one little phrase, he may have the whole chapter in mind when he uses that little phrase. And by that little phrase, he's drawing our minds back to that story or to that passage in the Old Testament. So uh, we might have to, at times, do some digging in the Old Testament to understand what John is saying. So there's the canonical context of the, the Bible itself. And then there's the theological or thematic context. And this just kind of has to do with what, what are, what's John's, what is this vision? What, what is at its center? What, what are the main themes that's driving the whole thing? And I think this is important because sometimes we get lost when, when, when Christians read Revelation or even preachers, when they preach through Revelation, we get lost in the bushes. You know, we get lost in the weeds and, and we lose sight of the big picture of what's the main thing that John is hoping to accomplish with this book from Christ. And one of those theological themes, and I'll, I'll even emphasize this more in a minute, is the supremacy of Christ. The supremacy of Christ. Think about the political and social context that Revelation was written in. Who's the emperor? Well, someone on the throne in Rome, he's a Caesar, probably if John is writing in the mid-90s Domitian, who is asserting his authority, and already by this time in the first century, there is emperor worship going on in the Roman Empire, where they're actually worshiping as divine, as gods, the emperors. There's Domitian, he thinks of himself as a god, and he thinks of himself as the most powerful, most important person in the world. And John is saying to these Christians, to these seven churches that he's writing to, no, Christ is. Christ is king. He is Lord of lords and king of kings. That is all over the place in Revelation. He wants us to know that, the supremacy of Christ. But then you also have the triumph of the kingdom of God. One of the things that is, I think, a a common trait in apocalyptic literature is this kind of giving hope in the midst of despair. You see that in the book of Daniel. So in the book of Daniel, you have people who have been taken captive out of Israel, taken captive into Babylon. They're living as servants, as slaves in captivity. They've been conquered. And the whole message of the book of Daniel is the kingdom of God rules over the kingdoms of men. 
And so you have in Daniel these visions of different human kingdoms, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, kind of passing in succession through the historical you know, stage. And Daniel reminds him, his audience at that time, God's kingdom is, is in control of all these kingdoms. And one day God's kingdom is going to crush and supplant all these human kingdoms. Revelation is similar to that. You have these earthly powers, but God's kingdom is the ultimate power and will prevail. So you have the triumph of the kingdom of God. And then another main theme throughout Revelation is the endurance of the saints during persecution. That is a common theme. Uh, You'll see this repeated several times in Revelation, the one who endures to the end, the one who is victorious, the one who holds on to. It's the idea of endurance, of perseverance through adversity, through persecution. You've got a Roman emperor and all of those under his authority who are now beginning to assert their dominance over Christians and churches and specifically persecuting them, imprisoning them, putting some to death. And John is writing to them to encourage them to maintain hope and endure through that persecution. So we have these key themes. Those need to be in our thinking as well. Kind of, kind of think of, when we think about all these contexts, one way of understanding it might be sitting in a room and, and taking note of the surroundings where, where you're sitting. And so you might be reading a book, but you're sitting on a chair, right? You've got shelves lighting the walls. You've got a particular illumination lighting, lighting. You've got other furniture in the room. You've got other people in the room. So you're reading a book, but you're aware of the surroundings. We have to do that with Revelation. We're reading a message. We're reading a book, but we have to be aware of the surroundings, of the history, of the geography, of the, of the political situation, of what the rest of the Bible says, of what the main themes are in the book of Revelation. And then we come down to the grammatical or linguistic context, which basically is what we think of when we say context. Like, what's in the sentence? What's in the verses around it? What's in the paragraphs around it? One of the worst things that you can do in any part of the Bible, not just Revelation, but any part of the Bible, is just flip open the Bible, point to a verse, and say, here, I'm going to read this one verse and... What does this mean to me? Well, if you do that, you can pretty much fill that verse with any meaning or content that you want. But you're, what you're doing is you're taking it out of context. You're taking it out of the, the flow of thought, the, what's around it, what the message of that book is. And especially, really with any part of Scripture, but in Revelation, we have to keep what's around it in mind. And so what's... What's this word? What's this sentence? What's this paragraph? What, what is he doing in this vision? That's the grammatical or the linguistic context. And now I, I mentioned this a moment ago, but this is important. Christ, Christ, Christ. Context, 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 but studying Revelation, Christ, Christ, 
Christ, the Christocentric theology of Revelation. Listen to what Revelation 1.1 says. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. And he made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. And I'm just drawing your attention to the first phrase. The revelation, which is where we get the word apocalypse from, the Greek word is apocalypsis, is the idea of pulling back the curtain, of, of revealing something. It's a vision. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Some translations translate that there, the revelation from Jesus Christ. And that's a, that's a legitimate translation of this phrase. But I like the ambiguity of the translation of because it can, it can convey more than that idea. So it can convey the fact that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ in the sense that he is, it's coming from him and he is the one giving it. But you can also understand it, and I think this is true in Revelation, that it is the revelation about Jesus Christ. It is revealing Jesus Christ. And you read through Revelation and that becomes really clear. That, that Christ and his supremacy, as I mentioned a few moments ago, his supremacy, his lordship, his kingship, his reign, that is central to what Revelation is all about. And so Revelation is about Christ, not chronology. What do I mean by chronology? Chronology is the order of events, right? Time, the way, the way events fit in time or the order of events. When people read Revelation, that's what they want to know. People read Revelation because they want chronology. They want to know what the future holds. But that's not primarily what the book of Revelation is about. It's about Christ. And if I do one thing over however many weeks we're in Revelation, if I do one thing, it's that you'll come away with that point, that this book is more than about events on a calendar. It's about Christ. It's about him. It's about his glory, his majesty, his lordship, his reign. It's about Christ, not chronology. Uh, it's about Christ, not current events. Do not read Revelation with Revelation open in one hand and newspaper or Facebook open in the other hand. That is not how to read Revelation. And some people read Revelation that way. They want to see, okay, maybe John was talking about this thing that's happening in, you know, uh, Syria or Lebanon right now. Or maybe he's talking about this thing that's happening in Russia or China or whatever. No. John was writing to Christians in Ephesus. He was writing to Christians in Thyatira, in Smyrna, in, in the first century. And whatever these things are describing that, that are forward-looking, do not interpret, don't lay the grid of the newspaper or current events over the top of Revelation and read it through that lens. You'll, you'll come away with totally wrong message and understanding of what John is saying. So it's not about specific chronology of lining everything up perfectly and making sure we understand how all the events are going to unfold. It's not about current events 
about what's going on right now. And it's not about curiosity. Some people read Revelation just because it's a fascinating book, right? It's fascinating. It's got all these images and, and symbols, and it's, it's intriguing. It, it is certainly one of the most intriguing books in the Bible to read. It's very vivid in its imagery. You know, it's almost like you're reading a fantasy novel, you know, with uh, dragons and, and monsters and, and kings and swords. And, and it's, it's very dramatic. And, but that's not why we're reading Revelation. That's not the importance of it. It's not just curiosity. It's not just entertainment. It is to receive the message of God, the message of Christ through his servant, John. And it's about Christ. Very briefly, uh, because I could spend weeks just on this, but what are the main ways that Revelation has been understood? There are four main camps or interpretive views throughout the centuries, going back to the time of John and then moving forward. Ever since Revelation was written and copied and, and transmitted through the churches, these four main views have been the way that Revelation has been understood. The first one is what has been labeled the histor- historicist view. The historicist view, and again, these are, these are very short summaries of these, of these views and doesn't include everything that they would say about how they would understand Revelation. But just as a general perspective. The historicist view sees the events of Revelation as being different events or stages throughout church history that that John was seeing unfold. And so one popular way that, that this is, is seen is in the way that the seven letters have been understood by the historicist view. The historicist view of the seven letters is the seven churches are seven stages in church history. And so the, the early church, the apostolic age, was the church of Ephesus. And then you kind of move through history and you've got these different stages. And then the way that those who understand it this way would say, we are now in the Laodicean age. Laodicea, the seventh church, the last church that John writes to, They would say, look at the church today and its rebellion and its lack of love for Christ. And and they would say, now we're in the Laodicean age. And and then you take that and kind of lay that over the top of the rest of Revelation. And they see different events that John describes as being fulfilled at different stages in church history. This was a popular view among some of the reformers, especially Calvin and Luther and, and some of the stuff that they saw Revelation talking about, they saw fulfilled in the Pope. So for them, the Antichrist was the Pope. And so you see these different stages of church history uh, un- unfolding in Revelation. That's how they, they view it. This is not a very popular view today. Uh, this has just kind of faded from this from the from the landscape of biblical interpretation, not very many see it this way uh, today. Um, and I think understanding Revelation this way is, is forced. It's, especially when you do it with the seven churches, you're like, well, this, this fits this age. 
really, you know, everything about this age is characterized by this one description of this church. It, it just seems artificial to me. It seems like you're trying to force this one description onto a whole period of church history where even today, you know, this very moment, church history cannot be summed up in a couple of verses because the American context in 2021 is very different than the Chinese Christian context in 2021 or in Ethiopia or in Nigeria where they fear for their lives to go to church on Sunday. So for them, uh, um, you know, a, a different letter that John writes to one of the churches might be more impactful to their situation because they're living in persecution today. So it, to me, it's somewhat artificial to superimpose these seven churches on seven different ages of church history. And, it, and to me, at times, it seems forced and not what John had in mind. Then there is the idealist view. The idealist view is, and again, this is a very short summary, does not see the things that John describes as specific to any one fulfillment. The idealist view sees more of a a kind of a a cosmic battle between Christ and Satan, between good and evil, uh, Christ versus Antichrist, but it's not specific to any one person, any one age, any one specific event. It's kind of a, a general description of the battle between God and the devil throughout church, throughout the whole church age. That's, that's kind of the idealist view. Um, the preterist view is that much of Revelation, depending on how much of a preterist they are, either much of Revelation or some of them would even go so far as to say all of Revelation, has been fulfilled already from our vantage point. So preterist just means past. So, and again, this, ha- this goes back to, there are two camps here, depending on when they think Revelation was written, AD 70 or AD 95. For those who see it written AD 70, they think much of Revelation was fulfilled in AD 70 when Rome attacked Jerusalem and destroyed it. And so it was future from John's perspective, but past for us. Hence the label preterist. So from John's perspective and to his readers, it was still a prophecy because he was writing it before it happened. But for us, it would now be in the past, AD 70. Or those who take the AD 95 date would see much of it as fulfilled in Domitian and the persecution of, in the Roman Empire among Christians and churches at that time. And so the beast in Revelation is the Roman Empire or the emperor of Rome and his war against Christ and his church at that time. And so again, still future from John's perspective as he's writing it, but now from our vantage point, past, preterist. And then there is the futurist view. I would dare say probably most of us in this room, uh, if you grew up in church at all, grew up with a futurist view of Revelation which is that most of Revelation, especially beginning with chapter 4 and onward, much of it is still future from our vantage point. 
So John is writing about it in the future. And even now in 2022, it is still future. These things have not yet been fulfilled. And for those who take the futurist viewpoint, they think that much of what Revelation describes involves a, a time of intense tribulation of seven years before the coming of Christ. And then Christ comes and then there's a millennium and then the new heavens and the new earth. And so it's, it's a pretty tight window of time when all this stuff unfolds, but it's still future from our vantage point. And again, there are like little subgroups. And when I say these for the four main ways, even these four main ways of the same camp, they don't all agree on every verse of how it's understood. These are just four broad viewpoints of how to understand the book. So which one do I take? Yes. No. <laughs> uh, I don't think there's much of the historicist view to commend it uh, that I really don't see much here that, that I can take from the historicist view. But there are, I think, depending on which passage in Revelation you're talking about, I think there are elements of the other three views that have merit. And so there are times when I walk through Revelation that, that I'm going to say, and I think that I think much of this has to do with the persecution that these Christians were going through in the first century. So in that sense would be preterist. But there's other passages in Revelation where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to think, no, this has not yet been fulfilled. I think this is still future. Or there may be things in Revelation where I may come to a, a, an understanding of this is, maybe he is thinking of one particular event, but then there's implications beyond that where he's thinking of, you know, this is something that is true many, many times throughout church history. Kind of an idealist viewpoint of this is something that's just common in God versus the devil throughout, throughout time. So there are some elements that, that I think are are valid from these three viewpoints. I would say primarily my viewpoint is a hybrid of a preterist futurist view. That a lot of it has to do with the first century uh, persecution that those Christians were going through, but always in the background is the ultimate coming of Christ and the kingdom of God, which is future. So mine is somewhat uh, of a hybrid of those of those views. And we'll see that as we walk through the book. And, and when I have opportunity, I won't, I won't be able to do this in every passage because we'll be in Revelation forever. But when I have opportunity, I'll try to point out at times, this is how a historicist would understand this. This is how a, an idealist would understand this. But, but always, I'm not just going to give you a survey. Always, I'm going to give you, here's what I really think this is, t- is saying. This, to me, this is the right way to understand it. Um, Last, last thing for tonight is that is perspectives and horizons. And, and this, this makes, um, don't worry about subheaders, provide more info. We, we don't need that. Uh, perspectives and horizons. And, and this has to do with the, the different vantage points where you're standing when you, when you read a passage. Here's what I mean by that. First of all, you have the time horizon. There's the time horizon. Think of a big timeline, okay? So you've got a big timeline. And we have to ask the question, okay, when we're reading this description of uh, a seal being 
broken and these events unfolding. When is this? Is this past, present, future? What, what's the time horizon? And what makes this challenging is we have two different time horizons. We have John and us. So you've got something that from John's perspective may be future, but from our perspective might be past. You have other things that from John's perspective and our perspective are future. There are things in Revelation that from John's perspective and our perspective is past. In Revelation 12, it talks about a a mother giving birth to a child and the devil trying to come and kill him. That's Mary giving birth to Jesus. That's past from both John's perspective and our perspective. So we have these time horizons. So we have to think about that. Where, where does John sit on that time horizon? Where do we sit on that time horizon? Is this past, present, or future? And then there's also, uh, for lack of a, a better way of labeling it, the spatial horizon. And that is space. So we got space and time. Time is it past, present, or future? And from whose perspective? John's or ours? The, the space or spatial horizon is you've got two main locations where things are happening in Revelation. Heaven and earth. And you have to ask yourself, where is this event happening? Some of the things that John sees are happening in heaven, around the throne of God. Some of the things that John sees, they're happening on the earth. And so you've got John's perspective at times looking at heaven, looking at earth. There may be times where it's heaven looking down on earth, earth looking up at heaven. So what's, what's our time horizon, but then also what's our spatial horizon? Are we, are we talking about heaven or earth and, and where are we looking at it from? So all that kind of is, is in, in play here when we read passages of Revelation. And you're thinking, my goodness, what did I sign up for? I don't, I don't know if I want to go through this note. It, it is complex. It's complex. It's probably the most complex book of Scripture, and it's why you have these widely different ways of understanding it. And you have four main schools, and those are just the main ones. You have other, you know, smaller ones that... Uh, it's, it's a complex book. And you've got whole denominations that have popped up and uh, risen up because of their view of eschatology and the end times. The main reason why the Seventh-day Adventists exist as a dom- denomination is their particular view of the, the future and the millennium and the book of Revelation. And, and then you've got the Jehovah's Witnesses, and they think they're the 144,000. So the 144,000 that Revelation talks about, Jehovah's Witnesses think they're it. They're the 144,000. And if you're not a Jehovah's Witness, you're not of the 144,000 and you're lost. So you've got, Revelation is, is a book that has been widely uh, understood widely by, in many different ways. So it is complex. And I may not be able to answer every question. I may go through this and still have questions myself and say, here's the best that I'm, that I can understand this right now. And my, my confidence level of that might be like 75, 80%, you know, but 
we're going to do the best that we can. And I'm going to get a lot of help along the way from a lot of other people that have written books that are smarter than I am. So uh, hopefully we can enjoy this journey together and in the end, understand more about Christ. Not necessarily chronology or events, but Christ, who is, this is his revelation. It is from him and in large part is about him. And so I hope we will enjoy this, this journey together. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we've had tonight to just talk about some of these introductory issues and the way that, that we approach uh, your word and this very important uh, book that your servant John has left for us. Lord, give us wisdom and understanding as we begin to walk through it. And uh, Lord, may we learn more of you, more of your will for us as believers. And Lord, may we be enthralled by your glory and majesty. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.